This morning I will attempt to do something different. This congregation doesn't have a lot of the old crowd, so I trust nobody will believe that I have turned into a heretic or that I have lost my mind. But we have a short text for this morning. I want us to read it four times from four different versions. And in one of them, we will speak in tongues, because it's going to be in Spanish. The red text, I'll read it. When it's blue, we read it together. Try to follow me so we do it in a unison. But the purpose of me doing this is not to entertain you or have fun. The purpose for me doing this is because it is a short text, and reading it in different versions and repeating it may help us to have it stick. And this is one of those simple passages in the Bible that it is good if it remains with us and if it sticks. So let us read together 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. And the title of my sermon is Dealing with Pastors, How to Treat Pastors. And let us do that. Let's start, I'll start reading the ESV, which is the commonly used version in Cornerstone. The Word of God reads, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. Let us read together the NASB version. Let's read together. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. In the NIV, I read, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you and who care for you in the Lord, who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And in Spanish, Pero os rogamos, hermanos, que reconozcáis a los que con diligencia trabajan entre vosotros y os dirigen en el Señor y os instruyen y que los tengáis en muy alta estima con amor por causa de su trabajo, vivid en paz los unos con los otros. Amen. That is the word of God. Now, this topic, which is kind of very straightforward, very simple, very obvious. I mean, we read it. However, it has been the subject of misuse, and abused by many in the church, both in leadership and among God's people. From the Garden of Eden, we have a big problem when it comes to a simple passage of Scripture like this. The big problem we have is we are sinners. And as sinners, we have a problem with authority, period. So when we read that so simply, 
it is very hard to absorb, even to explain and to deal with. Now, the difficulties we encounter because of sin are many, varied, and some of them are even inherent to our own culture. For example, the difficulties of extreme positions that have been taken about this passage and what it teaches. And those extreme positions have been authoritarianism versus anarchy. You have those who believe they have power over the consciences of people and that they rule in the church and that their word cannot be questioned because they are the authority and the leaders. And then there are others who say, well, there's no leadership, there's no authority, we all have the spirit, we all have the unction, so we all do whatever we think we should. Extremes. The extreme of clericalism, similar to authoritarianism, but not exactly the same. Clergymen are those invested with special unction. They are the anointed ones. Some of them even dare to use the words of Scripture out of context and apply to themselves, do not touch my anointed. They are the anointed ones. They cannot be questioned. And then, of course, you have the egalitarian tendencies of our days in which we are all, in all, the same. There shouldn't be any hierarchical structure in any organization because we are all the same. Which is true, we're all the same, but that doesn't mean that we cannot have any hierarchical structure in any organization. Every time I say that word, Lynn, I remember you because you taught me that word. <laughs> of course, the innate tendency we have about our sinful nature. You have this co-worker, this friend of yours. You've been friends for life at the company. For some mysterious reason, he or she gets promoted and you don't. And he or she becomes your boss. What happens? Friendship ends. He or she is now my boss. And now he or she is a jerk that I hate and cannot stand. And the problem is not with him or her or with you. The problem is with both. We have a problem with authority. You go to the Miami arena, to the FTX arena. You go to the ball stadium. You go to wherever you want to go. Who's the only figure that is booed by both sides? The ref. The authority. We have a problem with authority. What is the most hated car in the turnpike? The black car with the blue lights on top. Of course. We have problems with authority. Church is no exception. That disgust we feel for presidents, it's natural. It is the wearing out of power. We, it comes to a point that I don't like the president. We only like them 10, 12, 20 years after they governed, and then we want to make streets in their names and ports in their names and public libraries in their names. Because we don't like authority. And in our particular context, in the United States in the 21st century, we are the children of a society ruled by rights and civil, civil liberties and all kinds of things that just make us uh, allergic to authority figures. It is a problem to deal with. And of course, the greatest difficulty 
is sin. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Our heart is so wicked and so deceitful that it entangles us and we think it is God leading us. We think it is God showing me. It is my heart just deceiving me, entangling me, and making me think it's not. That's why when you hear an argument and you hear both sides, you say, but it is the same event. Is it possible that these two individuals, same event, same life, go differently? Because the heart is deceitful. Now our text is very simple. The outline is quite simple. How do we treat pastors? Well, the text says you you recognize them, you, you acknowledge them, you know them, you esteem them, and then it ends up with what appears to be a separate command, but it is not. It is part of the same deal. And by the way, be at peace amongst yourself. That's the way we basically deal with pastors. What does that mean? Well, on the one hand, we have to consider that this is a soft command. What do I mean by a, by a soft command? That it is not a, an imperative. It is a plea. It is a request. Paul is not saying, we command you, brethren, to esteem pastors. No, he says, we beseech you. We plead with you. Os rogamos, as we read it in Spanish. Like when you're praying, you're, you're asking the Lord, you're, you're supplicant. That's, that's what the text shows. It's an indicative. It's not an imperative. It's a soft command. It is a public command. It is a public request to the church. In English, we don't see the you, but in Spanish, we read the os or less, which obviously points to the plural element in the request. Paul is talking to the entire church. He's not addressing an individual person. And we obviously take it as a commandment. Because yes, it is a request. Yes, it is an indicative, not an imperative. But it's a commandment. And despite this being a young church, at the time of the writing of this letter, a young church where Paul only remained three weeks, it already had leaders. Interesting remark about sometimes we spending years and years and years before we know if somebody's a leader. Well, Paul didn't have that luxury. Those New Testament churches didn't have that luxury. I'm not saying we should be light and careless in imposing hands on anyone because there's a commandment addressing that. But just to point out that even though this was a relatively young church, it already had leaders and had those who stood above the congregation. Now, the three requests are quite simple. The first one is, recognize those who are your leaders. And, and the word can mean many things. It can mean to know. It can mean to appreciate, to cherish, to recognize. You decide how to take it. Some translations interpret it as, as respect. I'm not sure if respect is part of it, but... It, it could be included if you put other passages in the New Testament along with this one. 
And then you'll say, you know what? You can use that verb also to mean respect. Now, get to know them. Get to know who they are. Get to know is the primary or, or primordial meaning of Paul when he says, get to know those who are leading you, who are, who are admonishing you or instructing you. Now, this, this is probably a challenge for a megachurch. Some of you have been part of megachurches, and, and I would imagine it would, it would be a challenge. If, if you would be coming to a congregation of 2,000, 3,000 people, 500, 600, it would take you a while to get to know who are those who lead, because it, they are large churches. Now, many of them wisely have little flocks and little Bible studies, and, 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 and they do that precisely to give an opportunity to the congregation to get to know who are their leaders. Because it would be impossible for one single person to get to know people or for people to get to know that person. So I'm not decrying megachurches. I'm not saying anything against them. I'm just saying it is a challenge for them. It's very easy to come to this small congregation and get to know Freddie at the end of two or three weeks having visited here. But in other contexts, they need to do special things. For example, my friend Otto... Otto Sanchez, I say my friend, my honor to know the guy, he pastors a pretty large church, about 2,000 people, give or take, and uh, in the Dominican Republic. And one day, he's a very sensitive guy. He, he seems to be a very, very uh, uh, commanding person and, and very executive. But when you talk to him, he's a very simple, mellow person. And I remember him telling me with tears that one day he realized that even though he lived in an affluent part of the city, his church was in a poor part of the city. And he started crying as he was telling me that. He said, when I realized that, I decided that every Sunday I was going to eat with one of the families in the church. And then his wife and him were, were, were kidding about the kind of meals they have to eat when they visit some of those poor homes. But the truth is that he took that decision. Yes, we have flocks, we have Bible studies, we have lots of cells right around the city, but if, I get, if I'm, going to, I'm going to know the 2,000 people that gather here, there's only one way for me to do it. There's a schedule, and 52, 52 times a week, a year, I'm sorry, he eats with one or more of them. Because that's one of the ways. Now, Paul also uses a word that could mean distinguish or recognize. Recognize them for what? Perhaps, this is my speculation, I'm not saying it's in the text. But I would suggest, in light of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, well, recognize if they are qualified for ministry. As you get to know who they are, your conscience can be persuaded of whether or not they are those individuals whom the Scriptures describe as having a call to the ministry. We may think, yeah, I'm called to missions, I'm called to be a pastor, I'm called to teach, I'm called to preach. But the question is, what does the church think? Oh, and how does the church know? Well, finding out about those qualifications for ministry that are listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. That doesn't make them superior. That doesn't, doesn't put them in a higher level than what we are, it simply marks whether or not Jesus called them to the ministry of shepherding the flock of God among them. Respect. 
I'd say respect could be included in the translations because respect has this idea of submission, biblical submission. Now, when we think about submission, immediately all our red lights in the dashboard turn on and all our defenses and our shields are raised. Well, biblical submission is just submitting to the Lord. It has nothing to do with with bowing to a person, with, with acknowledging the superiority of a person. That's not the deal. The deal is, well, God established order, and I love the Lord, and I submit to the Lord, and who do I need to submit to? All to human authorities, to the civil authorities, to the government, to the police, to whomever, and in the church, to those who God has set to labor and to teach and to instruct. That doesn't mean that you are servile, that you are a slave. In fact, in the church, the ones who are called slaves are those who lead. In Jesus' language, those who lead are the ones who take the lowest position. But yeah, respect. Consider their labors and consider their admonition. Consider their instruction because their labor includes teaching, exhorting, and admonishing. In fact, the word used there has that idea. He's not just giving you information, but it's giving you admonition in the Lord. In Hebrews 13, 17, when it says submit to your elders or to your leaders, the idea is be open to their persuasion. When they come with the Bible open and tell you this is what the text teaches, don't resist, but be a Berean. Open your Bibles and check if what they are teaching is according to the Bible or not. And that's the whole purpose of it. And acknowledge them. Acknowledge in what sense? Well, they stand over you in the Lord. Acknowledge their place. The word prohistemi, from where this comes, is to lead, to shepherd, or to care. Again, First Peter 5, those who are pastors, and Peter says, I'm a pastor with them, consider how to shepherd the flock of God, how to pastor them, not by force, not by authoritarianism, but gently, meekly being examples to the flock. And then secondly, Paul says, esteem them highly. And think of them highly if you want, is the word. Now, let me stop here and say that I know, probably you too, some neurotic individuals that when you examine their lives, and they are in ministry, they were either, I don't know, I don't know what they were. I'm not going to be too specific because I don't want to, anybody to track this. But I know one in particular. When you examine the life of that person, you say, this guy would have not made it in the world. He would definitely not cut it. But then they find in the church this platform of meek and humble people where they feel they can just squish them and lord it over them and overpower them. When the Bible says, esteem them highly, it's think of them in two terms. Think of them highly because of their work, not because of who they are. Because at the foot of the cross, we are on level ground. That's why Paul adds that qualifier. Esteem them highly in love because of their work. 
It's, it's really very precise, the language. It is not venerate them, humble for them, submit to them, because they are the kings in the church. No. Think of them kindly, highly, with esteem, in love, because of their work. Remember Jesus' words in Mark 10.45. They are just slaves. They are servants. Jesus said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but he came to serve, speaking of himself, and to give his life a ransom for many. So, and he told his disciples, if I am a servant and a slave, what do you think you guys are? That's the reality about the ministry. Those who labor, Paul says, let men consider us as slaves of Christ. That's what we are. Now, as those who are the slaves of Christ, consider them, think of them in esteem, in love, and highly because of their work. In the Dominican Republic, it doesn't matter how poor you are, well, Yeah, there's a point that you can no longer afford that. But you can be really, really poor and still have maids, believe it or not. Those maids cook, clean. They, back in my days, I'm talking about 40, 50 years ago, they would cook, clean, take care of your little brother, your little sister, and they would live in the house all the time except for Sunday afternoons. That they had that afternoon free. And many times I've been up in the middle of the night and I have wept and I have cried and I have lost track of how many times I've confessed that sin to the Lord of how cruel I was to one of them. I don't know why. And I was cruel. I was a, I was a spoiled idiot with that person. And to this day I wake up in the middle of the night, and ask God to forgive me, and ask God to have mercy on that person. That's the point Paul is dealing with here. Think of them highly in love because of their work. Pastors are those servants who are basically under Christ, feeding, caring, shepherding, protecting the flock. They are slaves of Jesus. No more. Do it in love. It is an act of love. It is not an act of uh, manipulative submission. At the foot of the cross, we are on level ground. It is not that they are superior to us. They are like us. And Paul says, yes, but in love, esteem them on account of their labors. Not their persons, but their labors. And the word is, help us. Have you heard the expression to work copiously, to work to exhaustion, to work to the point of being tired? That's the word used here for those servants. Physical, mental, emotional exhaustion. And let me make a parenthesis here because we have visitors. I am not a pastor. So I am not talking about myself. I'm not saying, oh, look at me. No, no. I'm not a pastor in this church, I'm just a teacher. Just one of those that Freddie 
allows to preach here, so I'm not asking for anything for me. I'm telling you what the Bible says about pastors, wherever they are, wherever you attend, whatever is your congregation, whether it is this one or it is another one. They work copiously, physical, mental, emotional exhaustion. Hugo is with us this morning. His mother died yesterday. We've been praying for his mother. We've been trying to call him, texting. Do you think it is fun to attend a funeral of a loved one? Not even weddings for the pastor. pastor is concerned with a sermon, with a ceremony. Everybody's having fun. Everybody's drinking. <laughs> it is emotional labor. It is physical labor. It is mental exhaustion. It is heartache. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said, Who is made to stumble? And I don't become indignant. I have upon me the weight of the churches. And pastors have upon them the weight of their congregations. Paul says, consider their labors. Their wives and children do pay a price. They take a toll as a result of ministry. I have known young men, even older men, who told me, back in the day when I was a pastor, oh, you're a pastor. That must be awesome to spend your day reading the Bible and studying theology. He says, well, I don't spend my day that way because I have to work like you do, and then I have to do that at night or early in the morning. First of all, I don't know that awesomeness. But even for those who work in the ministry without having to work outside, if you think about the ministry, just in terms of reading the Bible, and studying theology to come to preach on Sundays, you have absolutely no idea about what the ministry is about. Preaching a sermon takes 30 to 40 minutes. Working on a sermon, I'm not going to tell you how long it takes, but it's not a lot. And the rest is pain and toil and labor and anguish and exhaustion in the middle of the night when nobody knows and nobody's seeing. May I give you some tips about Dealing with your pastors. Talking about Freddie in the context of Cornerstone. Doesn't apply to me. Doesn't apply to anyone who teaches here. We only have one pastor. And that is Freddie. But may I offer you some tips? One of them is do not take them for granted. As we do. We just assume the pastor is there and he has to be there and he has to make every hospital visit and every problem visit and answer the phone whenever I call and if he doesn't answer, then he is a bad pastor. But when I don't need him, I don't even remember the guy. We just take them for granted. Pretty much as some of us men take our wives for granted, some of you kids take your mothers for granted and so forth and so on. Wait till you have You'll get those nice texts I get sometimes. Oh, Dad, it was so wonderful to be at home. Thank you. I'm glad you say that. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for your pastors. Don't leave them hanging. 
Life is not about me and I and my circumstances. Bless my children. Bless my life. Bless my work. Bless my activities. We're going on vacation. Bless our vacation. And bless me and me and us. Just take a sec. Say, Lord, remember Freddie? Or whatever the name of your pastor is. Remember Nana? Or whatever the name of your wife's pastor is. Or your pastor's wife is. And their children. Just pray for them. Remember them. Encourage them. Encourage them with your mouth. Let me say something about hearing the word. And I'm going to say it. If the shoe fits, sorry. It's not too hard to hear the word. But Edwin, you're boring. I get it. It's boring to hear a guy. Try to put the PowerPoint to give you a hand. And, you know, at least you change it's 40 minutes. Some people cannot sit for 40 minutes for a sermon. Some people cannot let go of a thing for 40 minutes for a sermon. What, what's the problem? Well, it's boring. I need power. I need some Pentecostal fire in my sermons. Well, okay, awesome. Um, we don't have that. We're Baptists. So, you know, maybe our brothers here, the Filipino church, Maybe they have that. Give it a try. I don't know. But my point is, why is it so difficult to follow the Word, to be engaging in the Word, just to be interested in the Word, whatever it is? It it shouldn't be. But we take things for granted. We sit on our chairs there, and then when it's done, we go home, and instead of having Having roasted or roast turkey, we have roast pastor. Did you hear that today? That was boring, boy. When is he going to learn? Consider that. You have to admonish them. Admonish them in love. They are not above being admonished. Being above reproach doesn't mean you can never say anything to the pastor. No, they are sinners like you. They are brothers like you. You go to them in love and admonish them if they have to be admonished. But do it in love when it is required. Treat them with compassion. Treat their families with compassion. Treat their children with compassion. Because we're playing at the park or when we're running around in the church, every kid can run, including yours, who may be the worst, but the pastor's kid cannot run. They have to be an example of holiness. What about yours? Treat their wives with compassion. Because every woman can dress and wear whatever she wants. But the wife, no, she cannot have tattoos. She cannot wear too much makeup. Her hair has to be proper. How about your hair? Sorry if the shoe fits. I'm just saying it as it is. And I'm not asking this for me because I insist. I'm not a pastor. You can say of me and my wife whatever you want. Whatever you say bad, it's actually very little compared to reality. Trust me. It doesn't apply to Cornerstone. And the last advice I have is make sure you pay them well if they make a living out of the ministry. Cornerstone does not have any paid position. None of us here make money out of Cornerstone. There's a little stipend that is given to the pastor. 
And that little stipend that's given to the pastor, many times the only problem it causes is that it raises his tax bracket. So it's not even something that he can make a living off. But just for the record, no, we, we and I, I remember, I think it was Robert once who came to me and says, I want to give an offering, and he comes with a money. No, no, Robert, no, no, put it in that box. If you want to give any offering, put it in the box, because we don't make money here. The money that is collected is sent to missions, to benevolence, to pay electricity, whatever. Nobody makes a living in this church. However, First Timothy 5 says, those who are known for good ruling and good teaching, especially preaching and teaching, they are worthy of double wages. We are Latinos, many of us, most of us. And in our Latino Roman Catholic mentality, the priest takes a vow of poverty and the priest ought to live out of the charity in the arms of the people. That's not biblical. You know what the biblical teaching is according to 1 Timothy 5? That you take a poll of where is the church located, what is kind of the average salary of the congregation, make sure the pastor gets even more than that. And I'm not asking anything for Freddie because Freddie has his job as most of the pastors who have gone through this church have had their jobs. But I'm telling you what the Bible says. We cannot, the fact that we don't practice it because in the providence of God, we don't need to, doesn't mean it's not in the Bible. Don't be stingy with your pastors. Pay them decently. And then Paul ends up the passage saying, and be at peace with one another. That text is the elephant in the room of the New Testament. You know why? Because all of our New Testament letters are written for what? To solve problems. To deal with sin in the church. When somebody comes to me, oh, I, I, is your church like the New Testament church? Oh yes, come in. Exactly like the New Testament. As messed up and as problematic and as full of sinfulness as the New Testament church was. Which one do you like? Corinthians? Corinth church? With adultery, idolatry, fornication, stealth. You like that one? No, I'd, I'd rather have Philippians. And then, then you'll have two women at, at each other's hair, killing themselves. You choose. No problem with me. Because of that, then Paul says, be at peace with one another. You know why? Because that phrase from Luther is so real. We are simil justus et peccator. We are at the same time righteous and sinners. That's the reality of the Christian life. Sinning against one another is inevitable. That includes pastors. Irritating one another is inevitable. Or do you think when I irritate you that you don't irritate me? I have news for you, but I've learned to be a politician with the passing of time, and I just keep my mouth shut. But irritating one another. Troy loves the one another's in Scripture. Well, here's the dark side of the one another's. We sin against one another. We lose patience with one another. We irritate one another. And Paul says in Colossians, don't do it. Just love each other and be patient with each other just as Christ is with you. And that's why he writes in that context. 
be at peace amongst yourselves. Yeah, you're going to get angry. You're going to be upset, disappointed. That's inevitable, unavoidable. It's coming. Be at peace amongst each other. You are saved by grace. Live in peace. Don't do. Don't do what some people do. I've been 32 years in Cornerstone, almost 32 years. If we had the people that have left Cornerstone here, we would need to have all of the warehouses from here all the way to the street. No, that way is the street. All of them. We were a mega church. But people come and go. Because they need the oxytocin of a new love, a new car, a new job, a new home, a new wife or a new husband. But you know that oxytocin is just a brain hormone that helps you adapt or get a new circumstance, but it goes away. And when it goes away, same old. New puppies are beautiful. We love them, the little puppy and the new babies. But sorry to say it, they poop. It's reality. You come to a church, this is wonderful. What a magnificent church, I found it. And six months later, you say, what on earth did I do by coming to this place? It's funny that I had people recently tell me that. They were here and they left. And they were so happy. In the new place they were. And now they are not. What I haven't seen in 32 years is people come back. I haven't seen that yet. But it's okay. Be at peace amongst yourselves. Why? Because the gospel is about being forgiven and forgiving others as we have been forgiven. Parable of the talents, I love that parable. Man owed 10,000 talents. The other one owed 300 denarii. And we don't connect the parable. The one who owes $10,000 is thrown into jail. 10,000 talents is thrown in jail. And he tells the master, have patience with me. I will repay it. Right, and we quickly jump into the 300 denarii. And the guy says, have patience with me and I will repay it. But he didn't want to. So the other workers find out he's thrown into jail. And Jesus says, that's what God will do with you if you don't forgive your brothers. And we read the parable and we run. You know what is a talent? How much? 200 years of wages. He owed 10,000. You know what that is? Two million years of wages. You know what his problem was? He did not understand how much he was forgiven. That is our problem. We don't get it. Two million years of wages. And we go in the morning, Oh, Father, forgive me for my sins. But wait till I see X, Y, Z. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. Wait till I get to the office. But forgive me of my sins. Buddy, two million years of wages that you will never repay. And you know how much was 300 denarii? Less than a year. Now the parable makes sense. You know why God says you will not be forgiven until you pay? Because if you cannot forgive, you have not understood the gospel. There's someone at the office, at home, work, Whatever. You can't forgive. Then go back to the drawing board. Because you need to understand what is two million years of salary that has been forgiven to you if it has been forgiven to you. Only those who are reached or who have been reached by God's grace are 
gracious. And notice Paul's commandment. It is not be in loving camaraderie, be joyful and kind and sweet and smiley to all. That's not what he says. Because some of us and would be at peace. Be able to say, Father, forgive me my sin. And if there is anyone out there who has sinned against me, forgive them too because mine are bigger. And you could even pray saying, and Lord, you know how much it hurts. You know how much it grieves. You've seen my tears. You've seen the blood in my heart. You've seen all the agony. Please forgive them because what they did to me is infinitesimally small compared to what I claim to be forgiven of. That's the gospel. And then Hebrews 13, 7, and that's my end. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken to you the word of God. Attentively consider the result of their conduct and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. Be open to their persuasion is the idea in the text. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would not be profitable to you. You don't want to do that? That's fine. Tell you what. You're going to be the great losers at the end. Because God will somehow, some way, protect his servant. May the Lord teach us to acknowledge Respect, esteem those who are teaching and admonishing us in the Lord and to esteem them highly on account of their work. Thank you, Freddie, for serving us, brother. Father, we pray that you bless your word, that you apply it to our hearts. You know that many times we have sinned against you in this regard. You know how many times I have sinned against you. Oh God, my sins in that category are enough to send me to hell. We're not coming here claiming righteousness or claiming our righteousness. We come pleading for the righteousness of Christ and for the Spirit to teach us and to guide us to honor you by complying with this simple requirement from your word. And we pray for your peace, the peace of Christ in our congregation that surpasses all understanding. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.